There's nothing that God will not do for one sheep. If you are a sheep, there is nowhere that you can go in which God will not tear down every barrier to get to you. Elijah and this widow, this is the the precursor. This is the instance in which Jesus was saying, here's your example of the message of salvation going to Gentiles and Gentiles hear it and they believe it. And so the widow woman was not a believer when, when Elijah comes. But her process of conversion, of regeneration, is now kicked into high gear. God has prepared her. Remember what God said to Elijah? I have commanded a widow. God's already been communicating to her heart. He's already been working in her heart. And He says, I've commanded this widow. And then Elijah comes, and we can just imagine they're living under the same roof. We can imagine you know, her sitting maybe at Elijah's feet like Mary sits at Jesus' feet, just soaking up His teaching. And they're, He's teaching her songs from the Psalter. And they're worshiping together. And she's believing. And there's just this incredible time of discipleship. We can just imagine how that sort of plays out. Now, there's an interesting connection. If we lo- use a little bit of our imaginations, there's a really interesting connection for us to make in the New Testament. It's not spelled out for us. But I can, I can sort of fill in some gaps and I can say, maybe this happened. And here's, here's the maybe this happened is this. You remember the instance I read a little bit earlier, Mark 8. You remember this instance of this woman who comes to Jesus? She's got a, a daughter that's possessed by a demon and she pleads with Jesus, please help my daughter. And Jesus mocks her. <laughs> I'm not sent to the, I'm not sent to the dogs. It's not right to give the children's food to dogs. And this woman has such faith that she says, all I need is a crumb from the master's table. That's all I need is a crumb. One crumb of the master's table is all we need. And Jesus says, what faith. You know, Jesus only ever praised two humans' faith. Two times. Both times they were Gentiles. The centurion and this woman has such faith that Jesus remarks, look at the faith. So do you know where that woman was from? She's called a Syrophoenician. She's from the same area. Now, we don't know but would it not be possible that her faith came, it was fostered and, and birthed and grown into the, in the context of her grandmother telling about her grandmother's faith, her faith that was born out of a time of eating the crumbs of a dried up jar of flour for two years? Is it not possible that that was the seed of faith that has come down from generation to generation to generation and now this woman has such strength of faith that she can say, just like her great-great-great-grandmother, all I need is a crumb. And maybe that's why Jesus is so amazed because He 
knows the connection. He knew her great-great-great-grandmother. He fed her great-great-grandmother. And now he sees the faith of this woman. Again, we don't know this. But wouldn't it be just like God to have this connection in our Bibles? So that's the thing we see is that God here, look at what he does with his prophet. He'll take his prophet a hundred miles for one sheep. There's nothing that God will not do for one sheep. If you are a sheep, there is nowhere that you can go in which God will not tear down every barrier to get to you. God will find His lost sheep. Now the last thing we need to see on this point is this. Notice with me how Elijah does not make it any easier for the woman to believe and obey. You ever cringe at this passage? This passage is cringeworthy. It's cringeworthy because here's this woman who, this is supposedly her last meal. Now, I don't think we should picture her like this, you know, the pictures of the Holocaust victims, like she's, she is on death's door. I don't think she's literally on death's door. I do think this is her last meal. Nobody else in town has food except the rich people. And they ain't sharing it. And I've got no prospects of any more food after this. And so, me and my son, we're going to kind of enjoy this last meal knowing there's probably not any more. And Elijah says to her, first he says, give me a, a drink of water, please. No big deal. It is a drought, though, but give me a drink of water. And then he says, give me a morsel of food. And then he's told, well, I can't. We've got one meal left. And then Elijah does what? He ups the ante. Okay. Now it goes from a morsel to a cake. And not just a cake that she's going to share with him. He says, bring me mine first. You ever read that and say, that, that's really selfish, Elijah. That, that's really selfish. I don't picture Elijah as skin and bones right now. I think the ravens fed him pretty well. That's pretty self-centered there, Elijah. But the thing for us to see is that Elijah is completely comfortable making the path to obedience and salvation as hard as God wants it to be. He feels no pressure whatsoever to make it a little bit easier for the widow to believe. God has prompted him, this is your provider. Now she may as well go ahead and start providing for you. And he just lays it out there. If you're going to provide for me, bring me mine first. Now, Elijah's manners put aside, of course we know he's following the commands of God here. But he feels no discomfort at making the path of salvation for this woman as difficult as it can possibly be. We've all noticed the trend in Western Christianity over the last decades, probably my whole life and beyond. The best way to describe it is easy believism. What easy believism describes is the tendency or the desire of the church to make the path of repentance and faith and salvation as easy as possible, as palatable as we can. 
as easy of a, of a pill to swallow as, as, as unbelievers can be given, right? And so all this started decades ago. Well, I mean, it started a long time ago, but, but really, it really kicked into high gear decades ago with Bill Hybels and Willow Creek Church and the seeker-sensitive model that was designed to make unbelievers as comfortable as possible and make salvation or uh, giving your life to Jesus or all the phrases that were used to make that as, as little of an impact on your lifestyle as possible. The idea was that we're serving the kingdom of God by paving the road to salvation, making it nice and straight and flat and even so that unbelievers will have as few obstacles to belief as possible. So all this really kind of got going with Willow Creek Church. It spread from there. Today we see it in models like Hillsong Church. You see it all over town here. Back home I could point to six or twelve churches that follow this model because their buildings are always the newest, the biggest, the nicest. Their parking lots are always the biggest. Their social media presence is always the most prevalent. Easy believism. Let's make it as easy as possible to receive this gift of salvation, right? That's sound human reasoning. Is it not? The only problem is that it contradicts what the Messiah who purchased that salvation said about the salvation. He said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Now that word strive is the same word that we get our word agonize. Jesus said agonize to enter through the narrow gate. For the way is hard and the gate is narrow and few will find it. You ever feel the the pressure Maybe there's unbelievers in your life that you know and you would love for them to come to salvation. You ever feel the pressure just to sort of make that sound as easy as possible? And we hear it in our, in our language. We talk about, oh, how easy it is to be saved. It's just a prayer. It's just believe. It's, it's, it's easy. There's a sense in which that's true. It's easy because we don't do anything. Because God does it. How how much easier can that get? But here's the thing. Scripture never talks about salvation in terms of easy. Never. Instead, Scripture talks about salvation being bought by the Messiah who sweated drops of blood. Salvation being talked about by people like, like Paul, and he compares it to crucifying yourself. Or being made a new creation in Christ. And so, we all sort of grew up, probably, like, like me, I sort of grew up in the context of, of the altar call. Uh, it just wasn't church unless there was an altar call. And many altar calls sort of took this form. This will sound real familiar. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If uh, you just gave your heart to Jesus, then, then raise your hand. Or even easier, slip your hand up. Just slip your hand up. Does it get any easier than slipping your hand up when nobody's looking? Compare that to God's prophet who says, 
Oh, that's your last meal? Feed me first. Now, it's not her food that saves her. She's not saved by her food. But her sharing, her feeding of the prophet is an act of faith that's demonstrating the change of heart that God's working in her. And Elijah makes no step whatsoever to make that easier, more palatable, more uh, least, less intrusive on, on her life. Elijah's not saying to her, you know, you really don't have to change your lifestyle. You really don't have to change the things that you do. You really don't have to change your friends. You can have all that stuff. But Jesus too. That's not Elijah's message. Elijah's message is counterintuitive to human reasoning and human logic. So now, we see uh, that God will go to any extent to find and rescue a lost sheep. Now moving on to the last thing that we're going to see. Again, God's doing a lot, isn't He? And even more than this. We're just sort of recognizing the main things here. But God's doing quite a lot. The last thing that I'm going to point out is this. God is powerfully demonstrating His ability to care for His obedient people by using whatever means please Him. God is powerfully demonstrating His ability to care for His people by using whatever means please Him. So notice that this this passage is a passage that has the sovereignty of God. It's dripping with the sovereignty of God all over it. We're talking about ravens feeding people, bringing food to people. Uh, God, I don't know, takes away their hunger. They don't want to eat, so they just bring all the food to Elijah. We're talking about jars of flour that never dry up. We're talking about Elijah crossing over 100 miles and and immediately is the first person he meets is the one he's supposed to be there for. The sovereignty of God is just dripping from these words. So notice here a few things. First, notice how God prepares both ends. God sends Elijah and before Elijah is even sent, God has prepared the one he's being sent to. He says, I've commanded the widow. You're not going to get there, and then I've got to start working in her heart. God says, I've already prepared her. And that's so often how God works. God works at both ends. God sends somebody, and the person He sends is going to somebody that's already, already prepared for that person to come to them. We see this so many times in Scripture. Jacob is prompted to send his sons to Egypt for food, and guess what? God has prepared Joseph, and He's prepared these bins of grain. Uh, Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, can't sleep. God has prepared Mordecai. Uh, Saul is blinded on the road to Damascus, and God says, go and find this man named Ananias on a street called Straight. And guess what? God's already prepared Ananias for Saul's coming. We see uh, uh, Philip, who's sent to uh, Gaza. And on Gaza, guess what is going on? There's an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the Isaiah scroll and saying to himself, gee, I wish somebody could explain this to me. Or we see uh, uh, the spies sent into the land and God has prepared Rahab. We see uh, the Peter sees, is given this vision of the, the sheet and the animals that are declared clean. And as soon as that vision is completed for the third time, there's a knock at the door. And the person at the door says, uh, Cornelius, my master, sent me. He's been praying. And he was told to send me here. God works both ends. If someone is sent then God has already worked to prepare. So if God places a prompting on your heart, go and talk to that person. If that prompting is from the Holy Spirit, you will never 
walk into that cold. That will never be a cold call sale. You know what cold call sales are? You weren't expecting a salesman who just shows up and tries to sell you an encyclopedia set. You will never cold call, call, cold call witness for God. That's how I want to put it. You will never cold call witness for God if the prompting was from the Holy Spirit. Because if it is from Him, He's already done something in the one that you're going to speak to. So God is, is supernaturally working both ends by His sovereign preparation. The, uh, the hand of God is just all over Elijah here. So here's the takeaway. is this. Cultivate in your mind, cultivate in your life, the habit of seeing God's hand in everything. Cultivate the habit of seeing God's hand in everything that happens to you. There's nothing that happens in Elijah's life that wasn't from the hand of God. And Elijah, according to James chapter 5, is just like you and he's just like me. He's a man of the same nature as us. And nothing happened in his life that was not from God's hand. So also, does nothing happen in your life that's not from God's hand? The problem is we don't see it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.